Hi and welcome to the Girl Next Door podcast. I'm your host Renee Bennett and this is a leadership podcast for ordinary girls compelled to lead an extraordinary life. Make sure you come and find me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. Hi guys, welcome everyone. Episode 31. Can you believe we're up to episode 31 and we have not skipped a week, not one week? So I'm proud of us. Well done us. Well done for listening to all these episodes. So today we are going to jump into part four of our Girl Power Collection. I'm really enjoying this collection. I probably would do a few more because there's so many areas I want to dive into. But today we're going to look at two things. The first one is third wave feminism and what we can learn from that. And then I want to continue uh, what we were discussing, not last week, but the week before about gender equality. And I want to get into what I consider to be the dangers of moving towards gender equality in some areas. So let's get started. Make sure that if you haven't, you jump back and have a listen to Girl Power Collection number one, two, and three. Last week, we kind of steered away from feminism a bit, and we talked about uh, motherhood and ministry and um, my two options, my two solutions, I guess, of uh, the beginning of ways that we can get more girls onto the platform. So again, thank you for, I'm, I'm literally getting more and more messages every week. I love it. I'm talking to so many of you. And thank you too, to those that subscribe and review. That's really helpful because then other people can find this podcast easier. So thank you so much. All right, here we go. Episode 31. All right. I want to start by looking at the takeaways from third wave feminism. So make sure you go back to episodes one and two of the Girl Power Collection because we talked about first wave, second wave, and the takeaways from those. So today we're going to look at third wave, which most of you are probably thinking, really, there was a third wave? I've got no clue. I didn't know there was a third wave. I actually grew up in third wave. Um, so we're talking kind of 19, early 1990s onwards. And third wave was actually almost a reaction against second wave feminism. So even the women themselves decided that they didn't really like some of the extreme beliefs of the second wave. Remember, if we, if you remember when we talked about second wave, it became quite radical in the end. And as much as they achieved some incredible things, it also um, started to go down a, a quite a radical feminist line. And so women decided they didn't like some of those extreme beliefs. So the third wave became almost like a, a rebellion against the second wave. So here we see the goalposts changing, the fight changing, and what women are wanting, what they wanted in second wave was completely different to third wave. So the third wave is quite unremarkable. That's why you probably can't even tell me right now what the third wave involved. And it's actually hard to even pinpoint what it was about because they had no specific goal, no specific victory or major social change like the first and second did. Of course, the first being the right to vote and then the second achieved quite a few different changes in legislation and social change. 
So it was kind of loosely about fighting back against sexual harassment in the workplace and trying to increase the number of women in positions of power. That's really kind of what the third wave was about if you wanted to pinpoint it down to a couple of things. Um, they also embraced the right, uh, sorry, embraced the fight for transgender rights. Um, interestingly, where the second wave fought for women to be called women, not girls, that because they wanted to be recognized as adults and treated, um, you know, with dignity, the third wave wanted to bring back the word girls. They wanted to be girls and to make that, that concept empowering and threatening. Uh, it was a fight for women to get their femininity back. Sheesh. I'm dizzy with the mind changing of it all between second to third. The third wave pretty much embraced all the ideas that the second wave rejected. So the third wave started embracing makeup and high heels and high femme girliness. So really, that's all there is to say about third wave. It wasn't much more than that because there were no major social changes or victories. There's not a lot else to say about it. Except what can we learn? What can we take away? Well, I compare what happened in the third wave. I I weigh this up against scriptures like Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14, which says this, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. So, you know, why we have to base our lives on God's word and his values and not the values of society and especially not the values of feminism because God's values never change. And you know why they never change? Because they're good for us all the time. They work for us decade by decade. God never changes his mind. Unlike these secular movements who change their minds and their values and their core beliefs from one decade to the next, I would much rather follow a God who's consistent and stable and always the same. Instead, we've got third wave fighting against second wave, and there's just so much instability and change in their ideologies. And to me, that creates, um, you know, movements that are not trustworthy. And I think we always need to remember that's why we always go back to the Bible. God's word is always trustworthy from the beginning of time to the end of time. So that's pretty much all I wanted to say about third wave feminism. And I want to spend the rest of the time, we've got a good 25 minutes or so, uh, about, uh, I want to cover a little bit more about gender equality. So it was in episode 29 that we talked about the definition of gender equality. So I'll just remind you in case you haven't listened, that that means that we have the same rights, responsibilities and opportunities, no matter our gender. And I talked about how that is hard to achieve because of our different God design. But let me say too that some things are a given, like there should be some things that we do have the same rights and opportunities no matter our gender. And one example is the right to be safe. You know, women have the right to be safe. No matter that, no matter our gender, we all have the right to be safe. I think of domestic violence, that comes to mind, that just because we're women, we don't have a less of a, of a right to be safe. So there are some examples where that definitely works for us. Um, 
But of course, if you go back to episode 29, I talked about how often it's very difficult to achieve exactly the same opportunity and responsibilities because we have different genders assigned to us and these different genders bring along differences in who we are and in our roles. Um, But what I did talk about was we are equal in value. And to me, that's a way better answer to all of the issues that we face in society um, than the answers that feminism give us. Because if we treated with one, if we treated one another the way God made us, which was equal in value, then a lot of these issues would not be issues. So we looked at how, in some societies, they intentionally reach for gender equality. Um, and when that happens, the differences between men and women become greater, not less, because our natures lean us a certain way, which is completely in opposition, by the way, to the ideology of feminism. So I want to expand on this thought of gender equality. And this is the question I want us to think about today. Even if we could achieve gender equality in our society, like some societies have supposedly reached towards, that is having equal rights, responsibilities, and opportunities, no matter our gender, is that really going to be good for us? If we had every single opportunity available to us, which is what the feminists want, is that good for us? And remember, I've talked quite a few times now about the one question we should always weigh everything by, what would be the cost of that? What would be the price of that? So let's start with with the Bible again. Let's start with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. This is actually a scripture that I don't know if a lot of you know it, but oh my gosh, it's one of my favorites. And it says this, everything is permitted, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permitted, but everything doesn't build others up. What great wisdom to live by, that everything might be permitted but does it benefit us? You know, the key words in that scripture is others. It's not all about me and my rights and my opportunities. I have to think if I'm getting my rights and my opportunities, is that benefiting those around me? Now, a lot of the time when I hear women with very strong feminist views, I hear a lot about me, me, me. It's very self-focused and I hear very little about how their views and their beliefs will affect those around them. It's very much, I want, I want, I want. According to Jordan Peterson, a lot of women in law firms work as hard as men to get to the top. They put in the hours, they're very successful at what they do, but once they get there, a lot of them give up their positions because they realize that they've sacrificed having a family for their career. They come to what's called a career family crisis. Now, women do have to sort their life out quicker than men because we have to if we want to make decisions about having children. We have to be quicker about um, what we want. Does that seem unfair? Well, the feminists would say that would be perhaps unfair, but yet it is really part of God's design. That's the way it is, and we just need to accept that. So a lot of very capable women choose to step away from their career. Now, again, some might say, well, that's unfair that women have to be the ones to make a sacrifice from their career to have a family. This is an example of inequality of opportunity. And then when we step back into the game, well, we've missed promotion and opportunity. But again, I say it all the time, we are not victims. We can either see this as a disadvantage or a God-given gift. Look, God granted women and only women the ability to carry and birth a a child. 
But we do still have a choice within that. Nobody is stopping us. We can carry a child, birth that child, and then put them in childcare from as young as six weeks. But you need to ask yourself, is that what I want to do? You know, as long as you make all your choices with your eyes wide open, I said that last week, make them with your eyes wide open, knowing though that to everything there is a consequence and a cost. Remember that scripture, everything's permissible, but is everything beneficial? So you just need to be aware that yes, that's permissible for you to do that, but what is the cost to your child, to your family, or even to you? You know, you're going to have someone else raising your child a lot of the time, perhaps hearing their first words, seeing their first step, someone else being there for a lot of their milestones. You know, women are actually more likely to prioritize their children over their work, but men don't get off scot-free either. They pay a price to get to the top. What hours have they missed out on with their families or their friends to get there? How is their marriage going? How is their relationship with their children? And there's also a cost the other way that if you decide not to step back into your career, there's a cost that way as well, that maybe you won't accelerate as quickly or get it promoted as quickly, or maybe your economic status goes down slightly because you're not earning as much. And so you need to weigh up which cost you're willing to take, which price you're willing to pay. Now, Let's move away from motherhood and marriage because I'm aware that not everyone will get married or become a mother, but this still applies to everyone uh, across the board. And the fact is that our design, whether even when we're not talking about motherhood or marriage, that our design does change our opportunities. And even if we're given all the opportunities that we want, we have to ask, is that beneficial not just to us, but to society, to those around us. So let's look at a few examples. I'm going to use the example of women in combat, okay, fighting on the front lines in war. Of course, there's been a huge push that women should have the right to be drafted and to fight in combat. And if you read a lot of articles, there's a lot of belief that there should be one gender neutral standard. And as long as you reach that, you should be allowed in whether man or woman. That sounds fair, right? I agree with that. If your standard as a woman is equal to that of a man in combat or vice versa, then you should be allowed to fight alongside them. But let's look at the data. Does the data support that in general, now remember I'm talking in general, do women have equal status with men when it comes to combat? And the data actually shows something different. So let's look at the data. So the Pentagons, we're talking America, Uh, In 2013, they lifted a ban which was prohibiting women from serving in combat. So this was under Obama. Okay. Now, the the question since then has been whether the military could open up those jobs without lowering standards. So in September 2015, two years after that ban was lifted, the Marine Corps wanted to know. So they did a year-long study to try and understand how gender integration would affect combat readiness. So they found that all male combat units performed better than mixed combat units. So I'll quote from the study. You can look this study up yourself, 2015 Marine Corps study. All male squads, the study found, performed better than mixed gender units across the board. The males were more accurate hitting targets, faster at climbing over obstacles, better at avoiding injuries. So let me ask you this question. Who would you want to be next to in combat if your life depended on it? If you had a son, who would you like your son to be next to in combat if their life depended on it? 
according to that study. The Marine study says that its main focus is to maximum combat, maximize combat effectiveness because it means fewer casualties. So the Marines haven't actually said whether the study's results will lead them to ask for a waiver that bars women from ground combat jobs. Now, a similar study was done back in 1992. This is so interesting at how society has changed and how scared we've become to actually use the facts and go, guys, this might be not good for the whole of society. Back in 1992, a similar study was done. And this study from 92 and the current 2015 study found exactly the same thing. Nothing had changed. But back then, the commission based on the findings of the 1992 study, said this, they concluded unnecessary distraction or any dilution of the combat effectiveness puts the mission and lives in jeopardy. Risking the lives of a military unit in combat to provide career opportunities or accommodate the personal desires or interest of an individual or group of individuals is more than bad military judgment. It is morally wrong. This actually makes my blood boil because can you see that back in 1992, they were game enough to say, hey, based on our um, our studies and our findings, it's morally wrong to let people actually potentially die just to reach your gender equality standard and, and quota. But you know, if you were to say that now in 2020, you'd get cancelled. So the Marine Corps haven't come out and made any conclusion. So is it permissible for women to go into combat? Yes. Is it beneficial? Exactly like the scripture says, clearly no. So why push an agenda on the grounds of equal opportunities without weighing up the actual human cost to everyone around you? This seems like craziness to me. It's recognized, though, that women do make incredible contributions overall to teams and units. The question just lies with their physical characteristics. So they can still join, but it's the, it's the literal um, physical combat fighting where our physical characteristics um, are not of an equal standard to a male's. But there are other ways that we contribute in an incredible way to combat units, such as performing culturally sensitive searches, intelligence gathering, relationship building, and humanitarian efforts. But actual combat is still on the table, even here in Australia, despite very good study and evidence showing that it's actually fraught with danger. But this is what feminism does. It makes you think only about you, about us women or a group of women um, or the rights of women without taking the greater good into consideration. And I think we should think long and hard about that. Another example is sports. So we've seen many times that when transgender women compete alongside biological women, often the transgender woman wins because, of course, biologically, they're a man. According to an article in Wired, transgender athletes at all levels of sport are winning medals and it's spurring great debate. But isn't it funny how quiet the feminists are on this issue? They fought for gender equality and gender neutrality, and now they have it. It's actually biting them in the bum and actually disempowering biological women. But what can they say when this is what they fought for? They fought for transgender rights, so they can't say anything. They didn't think forward very well. 
So last week we talked about how gender equality isn't possible always because of our design. Um, And today I hope so far I've made you think about the fact that even if we were in a gender equal society and we did achieve it, is it really equality when clearly it's actually of no benefit to those around us, even if we feel fairly done by, because we have the opportunities we want, but are those opportunities fair to others? So it's really a we versus others. Um, and, And what about this? At what point will everyone, or feminists in this case, be satisfied that we have reached gender equality. This, this is the other danger of gender equality. Like think forward to try and achieve this utopia of gender equality. Well, at what point will everyone go, oh, we're here. We've made it. We've reached it. Like, is that when we have 50-50 representation of every area in society? That's what I tend to hear. You know, we hear a lot of this 50-50 quota, and that's what I want to look at for the last 10 minutes is, okay, if we if we achieve this utopia, when will everyone be satisfied? So, you know, okay, let's go for equality. Let's have 50% men and 50% women who are nurses, 50% men and 50% women who are engineers, 50% men and 50% women who are on the boards of companies. 50% men, I hear this one, and 50% women who are senior pastors, 50% men and 50% women who are CEOs of companies across Australia. You know, our universities here in Queensland, I'm not sure about the other states or uh, or around the world, but we've been talking here in Queensland about a 50-50 ratio of lecturers in, topic, in, in subjects such as engineering. Now, too bad that we're not choosing based on competency, uh, as long as we're just choosing a 50-50 quotient. So think about the kind of engineers that we would produce if the lecturers have to just tick a quota box, but they aren't very good. And this, by the way, goes for, for men as well. Like, what, what if there was a lecturing position up, up for grabs and the woman really was the best person for that job, but because we had to reach this 50-50 quota, you had to give that job to the man. Um, so I think, you know, it does go both ways, but does that mean that we finally reach gender equality when we go 50, 50? And why do you think it's going to stop there? You know, once, once people get something in society, they want more and a little bit more and a little bit more just equalizing women. That's not going to be enough because shouldn't we then also equalize black women, Asian women, upper class, lower class, Make sure we equalize the number of mothers versus non-mothers. Do we start equalizing according to intelligence? There's just no way to ensure equality across all groups because there's an endless number of groups. What if the 50% of a board are women? Okay, well then are those 50% of women represented fairly by all race and all cultures and we could go on and on and on? There's only one way then to make sure that that happens that we have this 50% gender representation and then that 50% is made up of who knows how many other equal numbers across who knows how many endless numbers of groups, whatever's the fad for that particular month. Um, It's a really dangerous path to start going down, but you know what? It's actually already happening. Be careful what we want. Be careful what we fight for because the only way this 50-50 will be achieved is if it's mandated, right? That means forced, monitored, What does that mean? Well, 
Who will do the mandating? Like the government? How will they do this? What, start fining companies who don't meet 50-50 quotas? You know, the you can look this up yourself. The Victoria government released a document in March of this year. Don't know how they had time amongst all the coronavirus, but they released a, a document in March of this year all about gender equality. You can look this up. This is the title of the document, Safe and Strong, a Victorian gender equality strategy. And then listen to this, preventing violence against women through gender equality. What? Am I missing something here? You mean because there's not enough women as CEOs and on boards and climbing the ladder that that is the reason for society's violence against women? I I went through this document going, okay, something's got to make sense here. That title's going to make sense in a minute. That gender equality somehow, inequality has caused violence. Now, before I go there, um, let me just say the, the violence against women is not acceptable. It is 100% not acceptable. The stats are way too high. Um, But before I talk more about that, let's just look at how Victoria, because that's pretty close to us, and you could maybe look this up in your own state, but let's look at how Victoria are trying to reach gender equality. So one paragraph says, and I quote, we will use our purchasing and funding powers. And then further down, it says that they will leverage their position by encouraging suppliers, contracted organizations, so contracted to the government, and funded agencies, funded by the government, to become gender equality promoting employers. In other words, we will control what your company does and who your company employs because we can either give or withhold money. You want the funding? You do what we say. Very interesting because it doesn't sound much like a democratic society to me when you have to start mandating and forcing. So another quote, in March 2015, the Premier announced that women in Victoria will make up 50% of all new appointments to courts and paid government boards in Victoria. Now, this has seen a rise in the representation of women from 39% in March 2015 to 49% um, as of September 2016. So that was only in a year. Okay, so that's a good thing, right? Because it does force people to consider women who might be amazing for these roles. So I think there's a good side to that. It's a great move forward. But it also makes me wonder, though, are we awarding people roles based on their gender or on their competency. It's a really fine line. And once they mandate the 50-50, are they going to go further? So again, I refer back to the research from two podcasts ago that Nordic countries who have done exactly this, purposefully reaching towards their gender equality goals, they've actually had it backfire. Because in a country where women are more free than ever to choose these pathways, Their areas of study and careers in historically male-dominated fields, guess what? They aren't choosing them. So the only way forward then is to mandate it, to force it and to police it. And that's actually happening in some of the Nordic countries. I think it was Iceland and a couple of others where they're starting to do the same as Victoria, mandating it and controlling it by withholding funding. But remember, the more they reach for gender equality, the more diverse the differences became between men and women. And why? Because God created us differently. I'm actually going back to the to the 
violence and gender inequality. I don't know if I'm like missing something here, but I'm highly concerned that gender inequality is blamed for the high amounts of violence against women in society. And like I said, the numbers are unacceptable. They 100% need to change. But I just struggle to see the connection between gender inequality and the violence against women. And my concern is the longer we blame the wrong thing, the longer these stats are going to stay the way that they are. What about the real reasons behind violence against women? What about fatherlessness of of our boys, of our men? What about the lack of strong role models in young boys' lives? What about the breakdown of the family unit? Why don't we address these issues? You know, you can look at decades and decades of research, decades of how a father impacts the development of a child, the development of a boy who grows into a man, of the effects of young boys living in single-parent homes. Oh no, instead, let's blame the fact that women don't get treated equally in the workplace. I'm like, seriously. And I can understand that those issues were talked about in the document, but there was nothing in the document about the family unit. There was nothing in the document about helping young boys to have strong role models. You know, what about the research that shows that the majority of male perpetrators are the products of a broken home? where they're denied the experience of traditional fatherhood. Let me say that again. There is so much research that shows the majority of male perpetrators when it comes to violence against women, they have been the product of a broken home where they are denied the experience of traditional fatherhood. But this hostility to the traditional family is one of the hallmarks of modern feminism. And here we see just the Victorian government alone playing into its hand, blaming gender inequality instead of looking at the grassroots issue of family and fatherlessness. I don't see a document supporting more people to stay married. I don't see a document trying to decrease fatherlessness. I don't see a document working out quotas on how we can actually get more strong male uh, role models into these young men's lives. There's some Australian researchers called Bradford and Rosenberg, and they did a study on the importance of fathers in the healthy development of children. I'm pretty sure they're from a university in Sydney. And they noted that children raised by loving married parents can better learn how a man is to treat a woman in the context of a healthy relationship. They also note that children who see their fathers treating their mothers with love and respect learn that they are supposed to treat individuals of the opposite gender with love and respect. These children learn that behavior towards the opposite gender that is not respect that being not respectful is simply not acceptable. I look at my own home. There is no way my boys would ever strike at a girl. Like they, they've had a good example with Cameron and the way that he treats me. And so I find it really disturbing that we've got these documents coming through that are blaming gender inequality, like we need to have more women in the boardroom so that we can somehow change this systemic gender inequality in society. No, no, no. It comes back to the Bible. It comes back to that we're equal value. It comes back to the fact that we need to look at the grassroots of the problem, which is starting in the home. 
Uh, Patrick Parkinson, a professor of the law at the University of Sydney and a specialist in family law and child protection, reviewed the statistics from Australia and he said, although the media, government inquiries and pronouncements by influential public figures appear to suggest that domestic violence is perpetrated overwhelmingly by men, the disintegration of the traditional family and the devaluation of fatherhood is one of the leading causes of the growth of domestic violence. I didn't see that in Victorian government document. I, I didn't see them admit that actually the violence against women is happening because of the disintegration of the traditional family and the devaluing of fatherhood. You know, politicians, senior police, domestic violence organisations, many researchers, most of the media speak virtually in one voice about the causes of domestic violence, saying that the irrefutable evidence is that the root cause or the key driver is gender inequality. So the dominance of men in our culture and the stubborn stereotypes about the role of men and women. Now, this view is really pervasive, and it's often presented as just self-evident. Yet there are serious researchers who have serious doubts. And they actually suggest that we're getting this wrong, or at least partly wrong. And like I said, that while we're focusing on the wrong issue or the wrong uh, key cause, that we're actually doing a disservice to our women. Peter Miller, an expertise in expertise, expert, gosh, I'm getting my words wrong today, um, in violence, especially alcohol-related violence, said that the politics of gender needs to take a back seat now. He says it's time to change, otherwise the feminist framework, while vital, will become a hindrance. So it's a real problem when ideology rather than evidence forms a basis of discussion and has the impact of actually stifling a discussion. And so that was, I guess, um, part of my point here today is to is to bring about the conversation that I guess has been stifled. I've even had someone text me that my a title I used was inciting violence against women because it's causing inequality. And I just was like, what? I don't, I don't understand that. And I think it's a conversation that we need to have because unless we get to the key root causes, then we're not going to be helping women like we need to be. And, and another thing, I really feel it's the church that needs to be standing up and having these conversations that if they're not being had out in the world, in society, by our politicians, by our media, who are just perpetuating the, the wrong conversations, we need to be having these in the church. And if you are somebody who's um, a leader or a pastor, then I encourage you to be doing your own research and thinking for yourself and to actually have these conversations. We do this in the academy. I, I consider this crucial in the Youth Alive Academy that we are talking to our young people about having a Christian worldview, a Bible worldview, not a media-presented worldview or a popular worldview, um, but actually teaching our, and that's what I obviously am doing here with with all of us girls, is teaching us to, to think of things from a, another perspective, which obviously is Bible perspective. So anyway, 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 that was pretty intense. That got intense real quick. Um, so hey, 
thank you for joining me. Um, we're going to keep going on the Girl Collection podcast um, series because I know there's quite a few more things I want to cover, particularly around women in ministry and senior pastors. Can women be senior pastors? So much more to discuss. But make sure that you come along, chat to me on social media. Please let me know if there's anything else that you would like me to chat about because I would be most happy to. Anyway, have a fabulous week and I'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Make sure you come and find me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast.